0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. Today's podcast is six short talks on inventors. Our first inventor is Jethro Tull, and Lorna Thomas tells us about his life.
1: Jethro Tull was born in 1674. He died in 1741. He's hugely significant the agrarian revolution. He was the inventor of the seed drill. The Chinese actually invented the seed drill of sorts in the second century AD. The seed drill was a very simple affair consisting of a cart which held seeds. At the back of the cart were tubes with wooden blades and the blades would cut and drill holes in the soil and drop the seeds into the prepared soil. Tull's adaptations in the 18th century enhanced the mechanism and were to become of great significance to the development of the agrarian revolution in the latter part of the 18th century. So how did Tull develop this idea and why was it so important? Tull was born in the 1670s into a fairly wealthy family who farmed on the Oxfordshire-Berkshire borders. He was educated at Oxford and qualified as a barrister in 1699. However, he didn't practice law. He farmed the family land near Lower Basildon, Berkshire, with his father. He noticed that the traditional sowing practices were very inefficient. The seeds were scattered by hand, which didn't result in an even distribution, as some seeds, be eaten by birds, and some blew away in the wind. Thus, a lot of seeds was wasted. Tull instructed his staff on his farm to plough furrows at precise densities to counteract such wastage. However, he was frustrated by their lack of cooperation at this newfangled idea, which actually drove him to invent a machine to do the work. The seed drill was horse drawn and had a rotating cylinder with holes cut into it. A plough at the front of the machine created a furrow, and the seeds passed through the holes from the hopper above the cylinder into the funnel below, and thus were dropped into the furrow. At the rear was a harrow, which then covered the dropped seed with earth. Less seed was wasted, the furrows were a constant depth, and in straight lines, thus making the weeding between them much easier. Initially, the seed drill ploughed one row at a time, but later it was reworked to include wheels and gears, which enabled three rows to be sowed at a time. Once again, however, the seed drill wasn't very popular at home, but it was accepted much more quickly by the New England colonists in America. Tull suffered from ill health throughout his life, and in 1711, he travelled through Europe to improve his constitution. He studied agricultural techniques on his travels in the south of France. When he returned three years later, he continued working on his invention at his own farm, Prosperous Farm near Shelbourne, which is still a working farm today. Tull further invented a horse-drawn hoe, which was used between the furrows, pulling the weeds into the surface to dry in the sun. This speeded up the process of weeding, was more thorough than the old method of weeding by hand. The significance of these inventions and other changes to farming methods was that less people were required to work the land, but food production increased. So, what impact did that have? In 1731, Tull published a book of horse hoeing husbandry. Say that when you've had a few. More commonly called hoeing husbandry, revised two years later. The book and the ideas it contained were initially met with opposition, no surprise. But over the years, his mechanical inventions became recognized as the groundbreaking, quite literally, ideas that they were. The rotary mechanism of the drill provided the foundation for all future sewing technology. And in 1730, an iron as opposed to a wooden plough was developed. This proved to be much more efficient at breaking up the soil for planting. Toll also stressed the importance of pulverizing the soil before planting to enable air and moisture to permeate through the soil and thus produce a strong crop. The adaptation of the iron plough aided the aeration of the soil and proved Tull's theory correct. Further inventions followed. Later in the 1730s, a new crop rotation system was introduced by Lord Townsend, otherwise known as Turnip Townsend. Previously, the same crops had been grown over and over again on the same plot of land, which resulted in less fertility in the soil. A field would then be left fallow for one year in every four, with no crops grown on it at all. Again, not profitable. Townsend introduced a four-year crop rotation system whereby the planting of crops such as wheat, clover, barley and turnips were rotated over this four-year period. This produced more nutritious soil, which in turn yielded more crops and provided turnips as fodder for animals over the winter season. This in turn meant that pigs and cattle no longer needed to be slaughtered before winter set in. And fresh meat was available to take to market throughout the year. This resulted in a more competitive market economy. The importance of Tull's inventions cannot be understated. The system is still in use today, having been modified and updated over the years. It was the forerunner of similar inventions, such as the mechanical thresher and reaper. With every new invention, agricultural production increased it has been estimated that crop yields increased by fivefold once the seed drill began to be more widely adopted. Toll's contributions marked the beginning of the agrarian revolution, which gave Britain the most productive and efficient agricultural system in Europe, with yields far higher than those on the continent on average. Prior to the 18th century, the majority of the population lived in rural areas farming the land to produce enough to feed themselves, the landowner and to take to market locally. The increased yields of the agrarian revolution were an important precursor to the development of the industrial revolution later in the 18th century and early 19th centuries. With more crops being produced, the general population had access to more food, As population grew rapidly and provided the workforce necessary for the new industrial enterprises. As fewer people were needed working the land, families moved to towns and cities where they hoped to find employment in the new cotton and woolen mills. Towns expanded. The population increase enabled more specialised businesses and industries to grow. The larger towns and cities provided the fuel drive an economy for the future development of the Industrial Revolution. And last, but by no means least, Jethro Toll died in 1741 and his grave can be found in the churchyard at St Bartholomew's in Lower Basildon.
0: Next, Margaret Denyer tells us about Mary Elizabeth Anderson.
2: While thinking about who to pick, I found this lady and was rather taken by her story. She invented something used by most of us, but did not originally intend to be an inventor. She grew up on the family plantation in Alabama. Her father sadly died when she was only four, but the family continued to live on the proceeds of his estate. They moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and turned to real estate. They started building apartment block. Mary was a very unusual woman for the times, from an unusual family. Her mother never remarried, and Mary didn't ever marry. As well as real estate, at one time, Mary spent time in California, where she ran a ranch and a vineyard. Really very unusual for a woman. In 1898, she was called home to take care of an ailing aunt. The aunt brought an enormous trunk with her containing a collection of gold and jewellery. And this allowed the whole family to live comfortably. In the very cold winter of 1902, Mary took some of this to New York to sell and to go on a spending spree. Who wouldn't? It was while riding in a New York streetcar in heavy snow that Mary observed the behaviour of the vehicle's driver. He had to keep sticking his head out of the window or stopping the vehicle to clean the windscreen. Being from a warmer climate, she did not appreciate the icy blast each time he did this and thought that there had to be a better solution. Following the trip, hopefully with lots of shopping, she returned to Alabama and with her business head on, thought that she was on to a profitable idea. She started to work on drawings for a blade on the windscreen that would connect itself to the interior, allowing the driver to operate the wiper from inside the vehicle. She found a designer and hired a local company to produce a working prototype. Once satisfied, She filed an application for a patent on June the 18th, 1903. Mary Anderson wasn't the first person to patent a windshield wiping device, and there were others with patents around the same time on both sides of the Atlantic. But it was Mary who was the first to actually manufacture one, according to several accounts the patent it was in her own handwriting but i couldn't download it the best i could do was to make a copy of it and i'm going to try reading some of the application to all who it may concern be it known that i mary anderson a citizen of the united states residing in birmingham in the county of jefferson and state of alabama have invented a new and useful improvement in window cleaning devices of which the following is a specification. My invention relates to an improvement in window cleaning devices in which a radially swinging arm is actuated by a handle from the inside of a car vestibule and the objects of my invention are as follows. First, to provide a device operating on the outside of the glass to remove snow, rain or sleet from the centre vestibule window of modern electric motor cars and operable from the inside of the vestibule, at the same time providing means whereby the window cleaning devices are rendered easily removable when not required thus leaving nothing to mar the usual appearance of the car during fair weather. Second, to provide means for maintaining a uniform pressure upon the glass throughout the entire area swept by my improved window cleaning device. Third, to so construct my improved window cleaning device as to make it up of two or more independent parts, so that an obstruction to one will not affect the other or others. With these several objects in view, my invention consists in certain novel features of construction and combination of parts, which will be hereinafter described and pointed out in the claims. And it looked like something we would recognise as a windscreen wiper. With patent granted, Mary was keen to find a buyer for the patent or a company to produce the device. She was obviously convinced of its value and she thought that the idea would be eagerly sought. But people scoffed at her invention, saying that the wiper's movement would distract the driver and cause accidents. All the corporations she approached turned her wiper down. Her great-great-niece has one of the many rejection letters. We beg to acknowledge receipt of your recent favour with reference to the sale of your patent. In reply, we regret to state we do not consider it to be of such commercial value as would warrant our understanding its sale well. Her original idea was for streetcars, but she obviously saw that motor cars would need this soon. They were few and far between, and the earlier ones didn't have windscreen, so perhaps she was too far ahead of her time, and these companies were not as farsighted as her. There has been some suggestion that if she'd been male, the outcome might have been different. Discouraged? She stopped pushing the product and returned to her other businesses. The patent eventually expired in 1920. By then, cars were being produced in ever-increasing numbers, the speeds of them had gone up, and the windscreen wiper suddenly was something that was wanted. It developed over time into the systems we have in our cars today. Mary lived until 1953 so would of course, seen some of these developments. One wonders what she thought. She was rediscovered, rather, and in 2011 was inducted into the American National Inventors Hall of Fame for inventing the windscreen wiper. She was not in any way connected to the automotive industry to which her invention related, and she didn't set out to be an inventor. It was as a business idea that she thought she'd hit upon. But we do now all benefit from her invention. She didn't ever receive any money or recognition for her invention. Neither, of course, did any of the companies that she originally approached.
0: Now Gillian Devine will talk to us about Dame Sarah Gilbert.
3: So the AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID has made Professor Sarah Gilbert, who led the Oxford team that created it, into one of the UK's most famous modern scientists and turned the Anglo-Swedish pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, formerly ICI, into a household name. So I'm starting with a quote because the language is rather florid. And my son said to me yesterday, mum, you can't just read that. People don't talk like that. So this is a quote. The story of the development of the COVID vaccine is the story of a race, not against other vaccines or other scientists, but against a deadly and devastating virus. This is one of the most epic and pioneering moments in human history comparable to the race to put a man on the moon, the discovery of DNA or the first descent of Everest. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is a trial, and its creators are lifesavers. Science is the exit strategy from the pandemic. As long as we make the science equitably available to the world, as all of the incredible people behind the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine always intended, truly the people's vaccine. This was the aim. It has been to an extent derailed by politicians. We were lucky. There was a whole series of circumstances which made us very lucky that this vaccine was developed so quickly. In the wake of the 2014 Ebola outbreak and realizing that a future pandemic of some disease or other was more or less inevitable, WHO established a program to review vaccine technology in order to be better prepared for future pandemics. How lucky for us. Vaccines work by preparing a person's immune system, the body's natural defenses, to recognize and defend itself against a specific disease. And COVID-19 vaccines work by generating immune responses to all or part of a protein, spike protein or protein S, as we've heard it been called, unique to the virus that causes COVID-19. If the person is infected by the virus after vaccination, the immune system recognises the virus and because it is already prepared to attack the virus, protects the person from getting sick with COVID-19. Luckily, the researchers already had their feet in the starting blocks. When Boris Johnson announced in 2020 that there would be a vaccine against COVID by Christmas, I just didn't believe him. Having spent most of my working life in the pharmaceutical industry in the Regulatory Affairs Department, I knew just how long it took to demonstrate the efficacy, safety and quality of a new medicinal product and achieve successful registration of a novel product. Developing novel medicines usually takes many years. But the unbelievable happened. A team of researchers at Oxford University, led by Professor Sarah Gilbert, had been doing the preliminary work on the design and creation of novel influenza vaccinations. In particular, the development and preclinical testing of viral vaccinations, which embed a pathogenic protein inside a safe virus. (laughs) Sorry about the science. For more than 15 years, She and her team had been making and testing vaccines designed to induce T cell responses to the antigens we encode, initially using antigens from malaria, influenza, and tuberculosis. Anyway, luckily for us, this team was able to adapt the vaccines which they were already working on, and the regulatory authorities worked tirelessly to shorten timelines without affecting efficacy or safety. Professor Sarah Gilbert, was born in Kettering in 1962. She graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Biological Sciences from the University of East Anglia in 1983. She moved to the University of Hull for her doctoral degree, where she investigated the genetics and biochemistry of the yeast, graduating with a PhD in 1986. And following university, she worked in industry until 1994 when she returned to academia. She was made Professor of Vaccinology at the Jenner Institute at Oxford University in 2010. She also gave birth to triplets in 1998. Her partner gave up his career to be their primary parent. And all of these triplets are now studying biochemistry at university, and I find that really amazing. On the 1st of January, 2020, Sarah Gilbert read an article about four people in China with a strange pneumonia. Within two weeks, she and her team had designed a vaccine against a pathogen that no one had ever seen before. Less than 12 months later, vaccination was rolled out across the world to help the fight against COVID-19. Both Sarah Gilbert and her colleague, Catherine, have unstinting praise for all of the team members who worked night and day to achieve this. The research that the team were already working on had given them a head start in the production of a vaccine effective against COVID-19 and they were able to start phase one clinical trials in March 2020. As soon as the novel virus sequence was released, they had been ready to move quickly to develop the vaccine against COVID. Efficacy and safety is proved through clinical trials. There are three phases to clinical trials. Phase one in animals phase two in healthy volunteers, and phase three in the target population. These three phases normally run sequentially, but in this case, the three phases were run in parallel, but with very strict conditions imposed and with complete transparency for the registrators throughout. This saved many months of development time. Initial clinical trials received funding from sources such as the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and some from the government. In order to speed up the development of the finished product, in parallel with the clinical trials, the team worked with a number of contract vaccine manufacturers to get them ready to make large quantities of the vaccine if it was bound to be safe and effective. And this is the quality module for registration. Storage conditions, excipients, containers, all need to be identified. It wouldn't normally happen like this without a promise of funding, since no pharmaceutical company would risk a financial loss before they were certain that the vaccine was safe and effective. Companies who took this risk were being asked to work very philanthropically, and AstraZeneca stepped up to the mark. I deserve a lot of praise for doing that, because you can imagine the amount of money that they could have had to write off if they developed a production line. They recognized the urgent need for a vaccine to defeat the virus, and the company was persuaded to join forces with the University of Oxford. This brought together the Oxford team's world-class expertise in vaccinology with ASAP global development and manufacturing capabilities. AstraZeneca have accelerated clinical development and rapidly mobilized partnerships. Their global supply chain supports a broad, timely, and equitable supply of a safe and effective vaccine around the world, if approved and at no profit during the pandemic. AstraZeneca were prepared to produce the vaccine at cost to help the Oxford team achieve their goal of vaccinating the world, and they deserve a lot of praise. The medicines regulators played a significant part in the speedy development of the COVID vaccine, vaccines developed following the same legal requirements and high standards for pharmaceutical quality, safety and efficacy as other medicines, where the process has been streamlined specifically for the development of COVID vaccines. Using a dedicated task force, the speed of development and approval has been made much faster due to a public health emergency. The standard timelines, the evaluation of a new medicinal product for quality safety and efficacy is 210 days. Because the authorities were using a dedicated task force and a rolling review procedure, wherein the data was assessed during and not at the end of the development process, this was reduced to fewer than 150 working days. This review process enabled the authorities to issue a temporary authorization, but not a full marketing authorization. She's had quite a year, Sarah Gilbert. The co-creator of the Oxford Seneca jab has been made a Dane, been given an emotional standing ovation at Wimbledon, and now a Barbie doll has been made in her honour. I thought I would be really pissed off at having a Barbie doll made on me, but she's put a very positive spin on this. Gilbert said she initially found the gesture very strange, but hoped it would inspire young girls to work in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, known as STEM subjects. She said, I am passionate about inspiring the next generation of girls into STEM careers and hope the children who see my Barbie will realise how vital careers in science are to help the world around us. My wish is that my doll will show children careers they may not be aware of, like being a vaccinologist, the Sunak Peace Prize for her efforts to protect global health during the COVID pandemic. And she was honoured alongside other new laureates during a ceremony in South Korea to mark the World Summit 2022, which was a summit for peace on the Korean Peninsula. And the Jenner Institute, where she works at Oxford, has been in the news recently. It has received a £50 million donation from an Indian-based vaccine developer, Serum Life Sciences. This is wholly owned by the Walla family, owners of the Serum Institute of India, who have dedicated their life's work to the development, manufacture and supply of affordable vaccines to low and middle income countries. It is the university's biggest ever single gift for vaccines research, and it will be the new base for the Jenner Institute. Serum Institute of India is now the world's largest vaccine manufactured by a number of doses produced and sold globally more than one and a half billion doses. It produces almost half of all the AstraZeneca shots destined for the arms of hundreds of millions of people around the world. It is another company which has behaved with altruism, having committed itself to producing the vaccine prior to regulatory approval. But it's become embroiled in one of the many political rows associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. SII's huge production has thrown it into the global political spotlight as world leaders battle for doses. And India, grappling with its own surge in COVID cases, wants the country's production lines to, to supply it first. So I hope you agree that the whole development process has been maybe not quite as flowery as getting on the moon, but way up there.
0: Adrian Martin tells us about the amazing engineer
4: Joseph Brahma. Joseph Brahma, 1748 to 1814. He was an inventor and he was a son of a farmer born near Barnstable. And he started off by learning carpentry and uh, he then decided, sort of in the best traditions of Norman Trebit, that the thing to do was to walk to London and get a job there. So he became a cabinet maker in London. And when he was doing this, he then branched out and started installing loos. Now, loos were the coming thing, and there had been a patent for one, but the problem was it didn't work in the winter. The water froze in the bottom. And so he invented a special sort of valve, a side valve, which improve the toilet, and there is one in Osborne House today. So where would we be without WCs and the work of Joseph Brahma? Who locked your house today? One of the things he was most famous for was his lock-making ability, and he attended a series of lectures on locks, and he thought about the problems, and they were comparatively easy to pick. So he set about making an unpickable lock. When I was reading the Pickwick papers a couple of years ago, I suddenly came across the name of Joseph Farmer and it rang a bell. And he set up a locksmith at 124 Piccadilly, where he lived. In 1790, he patented the Challenger Lock. Now, the reason he called it the Challenger Lock was that he issued a challenge. He said, I will pay 200 guineas to any person who can unpick this lock. So this was in 1790, 1851, Crystal Palace Exhibition, an American unpicked the lock. It took him 51 hours to do it, and there was a lot of feeling that he hadn't actually done it properly. The money was paid out by the Brahma family. So who's paid with a banknote recently? We've all used banknotes, haven't we? And one of the things he did was to invent a machine which produced sequential banknotes, the numbers. So that was something else he did. Gentlemen, and perhaps ladies, who's had a pint of beer recently? Beer pumps were actually, there was a Dutch guy who started to, oh, perhaps not unsurprisingly, but Brahma, who had the ability to look at things and say, well, that's that's good, but there's a weakness there. I can improve this. He introduced a beer pump and patented that. Perhaps the most important thing he did was to do work on the hydraulic press. And there is still an hydraulic press, which is known as the Brahma press so this is most important invention and Brahma and William Armstrong famous inventor lived up around Newcastle and made a great deal of money went into all sorts of things including arms production on an industrial scale so Brahma and William Armstrong were the pioneers in the fields of hydraulic engineering Brahma realized that when he was making his locks Rather than make them by hand, it would be useful to use machine tools. So he began to introduce ideas on machine tools. What else do we take for granted these days? Lathes. Brahma worked on a lathe, which he patented, a machine for planing wood. And he realized that when you are making something, it is terribly poor to have quality control. You're manufacturing something. It's got to be reliable. And he set up the process for this as well. So all these things Joseph Farmer worked on. A man, Farmer's son, attended the local school, didn't have much of an education, but he obviously had an outstanding brain, and he could look at a problem and identify a problem, but it's another thing to actually solve the problem. And he was very successful at doing that. Another thing, piece of paper. He introduced a machine for making paper. His last invention brought about his death, sadly. And just down the road in Holt Forest, he introduced this hydrostatic press, which could uproot trees. And he went down to Holt Forest in Hampshire. To see this and supervise the uprooting of the trees. Unfortunately, he caught a cold and then caught pneumonia, and he died at Alice Holt, then was taken up to London and buried. So Farnham brought about his death. So Brahmers, if you go to Fitzrovia, you will find that they have a lock shop there. They are used extensively for people like jewelers who have to have very good locks. This bloke was 50 years ahead of Yale and Chubbs, the names we think of more. Maybe they weren't so good at marketing the product, but it's pretty clever stuff. They still manufacture locks in Romford, and they've got their shop in London. They install burglar alarms. Surprisingly enough, no one's written a book about it. The only reason I know anything about him is I went to school with one of his descendants who was extolling the virtue of his ancestor for inventing the loo. Just remember this. Some people think that the loo was invented by Thomas Crapper. Well, he was just a flash in the pan. And quite frankly, it's a load of. Joseph Brahma was the man to make the sophisticated product we all rely on up and running. Joseph Brahma is quite a remarkable man. The work he did on hydraulics and machine tools, a really early pioneer. And of course, this was a time, 1748 to 1814, the Industrial Revolution was kicking off big time. We don't know him, really. There's a pub in Barnsley called the Joseph Brahma. Next, Jackie
0: Prothero tells us about Bartolomeo Cristofori.
5: He was an Italian and he invented the piano, which was eventually called the gravicembalo con piano e forte. In other words, a harpsichord who was able to play soft and loud. Christophe who was born in 1633, the same year as Samuel Pepys, just to align your history. Now, eventually, he went to work in Florence. He was born in Padua. Nothing much is known of his early life, but by the time he was 30, his fame of his innovation of a stringed instrument was traveling abroad. Now, at the time of the Venice Festival in 1655, Prince Hernando de' Medici, who was the son of Cosimo III of the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, was looking for a new technician for his instrumental renovations and restoring his very famous collection. So he called in to see Christopher, and... A report was made by a journalist at the time called Massey. It went something like this. I want you to come and work for me. And Christophe said, non volevo. I do not wish to come. The prince replied, I, faro io. I will make you want to come and work for me. Now, this was in the March. And in the May, Cristofori had gone to Florence to work in the Galleria dei Lavori de Uffizi. He'd gone to the workshops at the back of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. When he got there, he was given a house, fully equipped by the administration, and he found himself in a large noisy workshop and he couldn't work there because he needed to think very carefully about his invention. So he complained. He's quite a false right fellow, actually. And they gave him a workshop and two assistants, and he started work in the Galleria dei Uffizi. So he set to work. Now, the prince wanted him to restore pianos. He wanted him to also progress with his inventions. What a harpsichord looks like to us today, Christoffrey used that cabinet for the invention of his piano. Now his piano, of course, the mechanism was totally different from the harpsichord. Now I have to explain this to you. The harpsichord, I don't know if you know this, but there's a little plectrum that sits in a box. And when you strike the key, it pops up, plucks the string and retrieves. Now this sound was very bright and very hard and the problem that Bartolomeo wanted to solve was first of all he needed to make his new instrument more flexible. He wanted a soft tone and a loud tone which could be accomplished by the player himself. With a harpsichord I'm afraid you just have the same brilliance all the time unless you use a stop which is in the front of the board, and you can press it or use your knee to operate it. There are stops on the harpsichord, but it's not quite what Christophery wanted. And these strings are soft and light and were not suitable for what he wanted to do. First of all, he decided he'd change the wood of the soundboard, which was the cypress wood. This wood had a better resonating quality than the wood that was being used at the time. And together with that, he had to have thicker strings. They were originally iron, and he changed these to brass. And he wanted pairs of strings. So the vibration of two strings produced a a more wholesome tone than just the one string. So he had two strings to one key. Together with the cypress wood and the new strings, eventually, this produced a sweeter sound. But the main point of this invention was the construction of the hammer with the escapement and the check. Now, how did this work? Well, first of all, we had to design a hammer. And this was rolled paper glued together, and then a little piece of leather was cut and stuck over the ball of the hammer. So that when it struck the string, it was the leather part that struck the string and the paper was secured by this leather strip. That was the first thing. So this was a percussive instrument as opposed to a plucking instrument. Now, the next thing he had to think about was if the hammer struck the string, it would flop against the string and it would stop the vibration of the string Going down into the soundboard, which was elevated off the main body of the instrument to improve the vibrations of the string. So he produced this casement action, which pulled the hammer. So here you have the hammer striking the string, and then you have the casement entrapment pulling it back so that the string is free to vibrate. But that wasn't all. What would happen if the string was struck by the hammer? Would it keep going forwards and backwards? So a check was incorporated to prevent that. So he'd got a construction where the hammer would strike the string. It would be controlled and checked, ready for the next playing. Now, if you play the piano today, if you strike your keyboard lightly, you'll get a softer sound. If you strike the keyboard with greater velocity, you're going to get a stronger, louder sound, aren't you? And this is what he achieved with his piano. You could actually play softly and loudly, but he not only achieved that, he also chose to construct the una corda. We say in English, una corda. So that means that the keyboard, if you use your left-hand pedal of your piano, the whole keyboard shunts to the right, and the hammer will only strike one of the three strings in your piano. Now, he had two strings. He hadn't got a mechanism to move that keyboard to us. So he did it manually. So he's now achieved three things a piano touch, a forte touch, and a, a una corta. So he'd achieved what he wanted a flexibility of sound coming from this new instrument. Now, this was very ingenious. And this Construction and invention was little altered for 75 years. Now, the first piano was ready for use in 1700. He was about 50. And this construction of this piano lasted until 1720. It was extremely expensive. And only nobles could afford to buy these instruments. And it happened that the King of Portugal paid 200 gold louis for one piano. And it was for his queen, Maria Barbara. Some of you may know of Maria Barbara. She had lots of Scarlatti sonatas written for her. This piano that Maria Barbara played on one of the first pianos was four octaves. That's 54 notes. So it was quite a small keyboard. It was bigger than the clavichord, certainly much larger than the early spinet so we have four octaves now the interesting thing is that when Maria Barbara's teacher was Domenico Scarlatti now Domenico Scarlatti arrived in Portugal when he was about 30 as a teacher and that's why he wrote these pieces essentially for the piano but they could also be played on the harpsichord but people weren't very keen on this piano because it had a softer sound and it seemed a bit dull because the plectrum plucking the strings of the harpsichord made a much more brilliant, harsher tone. So this construction was actually modified and used for the forte piano a little later. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Mozart and Hyder played the next instrument using Christopher's mechanism for the new Piano which was cheaper to produce, called the forte piano. But the forte piano has a leather hammer, not a ball of paper with the leather strip, and that is why you get a lighter sound from a forte piano. So, Bach and Handel, who were born at the same time as Scarlatti, did not use these pianos, they wrote for harpsichord and organ. So, Scarlatti was the first of this period to actually teach on one of these pianos. By 1760, this first uh, piano was slightly out of fashion because of the expense of the, its production. And so Mozart and Haydn used the slightly modified piano and it was increased to five octaves and six octaves. Beethoven played on, on a piano of six octaves. And if you look at Beethoven's sonatas, you will see that the early sonatas are for the five-octave piano, and the later Beethoven sonatas are for the six-octave piano. It's quite interesting looking at this music, and you will discover the development of the length of the keyboard. Now, there are three keyboards today that you may go and see if you wish. One is in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. The other is in the Leipzig Museum for Musical Instruments. And the third is in Florence. The one in the Metropolitan Museum in New York is playable, but it's had a lot of work done to it. We couldn't have the piano today that we have at home or we see on TV or wherever we go to concerts. If it hadn't been for this ingenious invention, Broadwood and Erard, Two very famous names, one in English, one French, did further developments on this mechanism. But the pianos we have today have this idea in their mechanism, which was first started by Christopher 350 years ago. So that's quite amazing. If you take the front off your piano, you will see the hammers today made of felt, the dampers, and the action, which is hidden. If you've got a grand piano, it's much easier to see the action, but it's quite interesting to put your head into the piano and have a look. But it's interesting to see that from an 18th century musical dictionary, Christopher's entry, I've quoted this, obviously it's translated, a distinguished restorer and inventor, an inventor of the harpsichord with hammers, which produced a quality of chocolate.
0: And finally, Joe Watson talks about Charles Goodyear.
6: If you are of a, an emotional bent. You may need a box of hankies for this talk. Now you may think that rubber came into being in the middle of the 19th century, but it had been in use for several hundred years before that. The natural latex, as I'm sure you all learned in school geography, was found in trees in places like the Amazon rainforest. It had been used for making balls and other items as far back as 1600 BC. But this is the story of how it came to be what we would recognize today. It's the tale of a successful businessman and amateur chemist turned impoverished inventor. His name is Charles Goodyear. He was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1801 he was the eldest of six children. Now his early working life was in the hardware business and in 1824 he opened a shop in Philadelphia. Now initially he got on well, business flourished but in 1829 his health failed as did some of his investments and he went bankrupt. Home life wasn't too happy either marred by the regular deaths of his children. 12 were born, six died in infancy. Now, in the early 1830s, he heard about gum elastic, which was essentially natural rubber, and he began experimenting. Now, lots of people were doing this, and a few years before, a chap called Thomas Macintosh developed his coat. Macintosh was a, a Brit, and the coat became known as the Macintosh. And then he merged with a chap called Thomas Hancock, and they began experimenting with rubberizing fabrics, which was basically two layers of cloth with this gungy stuff in the middle. Now, the substance was known as India Rubber because people thought it only came from the Indies. And the name Rubber was adopted because the renowned English chemist, Joseph Priestley, said it was only good for rubbing out pencil marks. The main trouble with gum elastic was that it was very messy. It froze bone hard in winter and turned glue like in summer, rotted and smelled horrible. So the bottom fell out of the market. Goodyear wasn't put off and was effectively given some of the redundant stock returned from unsatisfied customers to a now defunct rubber company in New York. He'd play with the stuff, experiment in the family kitchen, which must have been a rather messy process. Inevitably, he was periodically imprisoned for debt. But even then, he didn't give up and his wife would bring him the materials into prison so he could keep on with his experiments. I expect she was really glad to get him out of the house. He tried again, things looked more promising, and he he set up in an attic a few miles away. But some of the chemicals he used as solvents were positively dangerous. Nitric acid gave off a poisonous gas and nearly killed him, and lead oxide was another of the toxic materials he used. And not surprisingly, they left him with significant health problems. He did rather surprisingly, find a new business partner who built him a specialist factory. And the company made clothing, life preservers, you know, those small truncheons with a weighted end, rubber shoes and similar things like that. But fate intervened once more. And in 1837, there was a financial panic. His partner was wiped out and Goodyear was left penniless. He sold the family furniture and they ended up living in his abandoned rubber factory on Staten Island. Catching fish in the harbour to live on. Most people would have probably given up. I'm sure his family were at their wits' end, but instead they moved to Boston. Amazingly, he found more backers and, with help from another interesting manufacturer, got a patent which he sold on. Problem solved, you might think. The goods he made were beautiful to look at, but they still melted in the heat and froze in the cold, and customers kept returning the products. Then, fortunately for all concerned, he had his eureka moment. Goodyear's own account was that in 1839, he accidentally dropped a piece of sulphur-coated rubber he was holding onto the surface of a hot stove, where it charred like leather. The high temperature and short exposure to the heat changed the properties of not just the surface of the treated rubber, but the entire sample. He had effectively made waterproof rubber, but the following year was probably the darkest time of his life. Dyspeptic, gout-ridden, he hobbled about on crutches. He knew heat was the key, but how much and for how long? With endless patience, he roasted bits of rubber in hot sand, toasted them like marshmallows, steamed them over the kettle, pressed them between hot irons. And when his long-suffering wife took bread out of the oven, he threw in chunks of the foul-smelling gum. He sold the furniture, pawned his watch. The dinner plates went too, so he made rubber ones. I'm not sure there was much left in terms of food to eat off them. He was jailed once more, and when he got out, found his latest infant son dead. With no money, he had to haul the small coffin to the graveyard in a borrowed wagon. Well, it sounds like the plot for one of Dickens' novels. But keep those hankies handy, there's more to come. But at first, he did find the answer, which was that steam under pressure, applied for four to six hours at around 270 degrees, gave the best results. Sounds rather like a bake-off experiment. Well, he wrote then to his wealthy brother-in-law in in New York, who was a textile manufacturer, who, having poo-pooed his early ideas, was suddenly interested. The business took off, but Goodyear wasn't interested in the manufacturing side, got rid of his shares, which could have made his fortune and went back to his experiments. He made everything you could think of out of rubber. Banknotes, musical instruments, flags, ship sails and ships themselves. He had his portrait painted in rubber, calling cards engraved, his autobiography printed on it. His clothes, hat, coat, waistcoat, ties were all made out of rubber, but that's a wholly different sideline way ahead of the time. Now, the main problem was he was slow in filing for his patents and he had to fight several court cases. Hancock, as we heard earlier, well, he painted the idea eight weeks before Goodyear and after he won the third case, admitted he'd seen Goodyear's work on a visit to the States and that had steered him in the right direction. He offered Goodyear half the royalties, but he declined. He was a truly dreadful businessman. Well, the process became known as vulcanization after the god of fire, Vulcan, and Hancock claiming that one of his friends had come up with the name. Goodyear did get one patent in 1841 for a process using heated cast iron, but there were so many infringements, he was continually fighting court cases. He exhibited at the Paris Exhibition in 1855 and was awarded the Légion d'Honneur, but lost a court case there on a technicality. All the income he'd hoped to accrue vanished. Oh, used he was jailed for good measure. The same year, he developed the first vulcanised rubber football, which was much more stable than the old pig's bladder. The FA declared it the official ball, and the circumference of 27 or 28 inches remains the same today. And of course, the FA were, in effect, the world governing body, and so it was adopted worldwide. Well, Goodyear's end was pretty depressing. Having gone to visit a sick daughter, he found she'd just died. He followed suit a few weeks later in 1860, aged 59. He had debts of $200,000. He had more than 60 patents running, and his family, well, they did receive some royalties, but nothing like what he really deserved. His son, William, was only 14 when his father died, but he did benefit from the monies. He went to Yale, became a noted art historian, and the first curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, so a very different line. But, and this may surprise you, the Goodyear Tire Company has no family links. They chose the name to associate themselves with his achievements.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this
4: talk.